Welcome to the Space Biff Spacecast. As always, my name is Dan Thoreau, and today I am sitting down. Well, I'm standing right now. Actually, I am what? too. You are standing as well. Okay, so I am joined by <laughs> today. I am standing up with Ben Madison. Uh, ben is a game designer. He is known, at least to me, for a handful of designs, uh, largely about religion. Um, so Nubia, uh, the first Jihad, and the Mission, all of which I have played. I've also played the White Tribe. Um, welcome, Ben. Thank you. I, I also designed Gorbachev on the Fall of Communism, which one could argue, and from a certain perspective, is a religious game as well. Oh, really? I, why don't you argue it for me? Well, the the ideology of communism, which uh, has all the all the classic aspects of religion. Uh, the, the destiny of humanity is known by the prophets, but we have our role to play in bringing it about. Which is sort yeah. of if you take if you take Marxism at its word, is how the universe, is, how the, the human condition is supposed to develop. And uh, right. in the 1980s, we discovered in the Soviet Union it didn't develop as it was expected to. Mm-hmm. So I believe yeah, so I, designed, uh, I designed a game on the the fall of communism, and you play Gorbachev and his advisors trying to hold the Soviet Union together and uh, come up with a, a treaty to create a, a better, a more perfect union without the whole thing falling apart into civil wars and strife the way the way it did historically. Now I understand. I was going to ask you actually, so this is a good segue. Mm-hmm. You know. So Gorbachev would be more in line with your formal education, is that correct? Correct, yeah. I, I, this is, I tell people this is the story of my life. I majored in Soviet studies, and I graduated in 1989, the year the Berlin Wall came down and my degree became useless, which is why I drive a truck today. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So, you, so are you a, a long-haul trucker? No, I'm a short-haul trucker. I worked for 13 years... Uh, with a flower company, a local flower company delivering flowers. And then this spring, that went out of business, although it had nothing to do with COVID, believe it or not. And uh, so now I work uh, I work for a uh, garden supply company, and uh, I take um, – I deliver grills, but I do mostly transfers between the warehouse and the stores. So everything from I, – I live in Milwaukee. So everything from Green Bay in the north to northern Illinois in the south. I, that, that's my character. Okay. So what kind of, uh, in terms of hourage, what kind of distance is that for those of us who don't know the geography? Um, the longest single journey is about two hours. Okay. So I'm, I'm home every night. It's not, I'm, I'm not sleeping in the back of my truck or anything like that. Yeah. Here in the West, uh, we, we <laughs> measure everything by hours. Yes. <laughs> so, how did you move from Soviet history to your interest and education? It sounds like informal education in early Christianity. Um, actually, my interest in Christianity predates my Soviet studies. I had a religious conversion experience my the summer after I left high school and uh, graduated from high school. And uh, it was actually in the Mormon tradition. And so that began, I, I was raised, born and raised atheist, and then I had my conversion experience uh, when I was 16, I think, 16 or 17. And that got me into 
the history of Christianity because Mormonism claims to be a restoration of primitive Christianity as it was known in the time of Jesus and the apostles. And so I began to learn more and more about uh, that period in Christian history. And over a long period of time, it led me to diverge from the Mormon tradition. I'm Episcopalian now. But that um, that study of early Christianity really fascinated me. And uh, it's always been in the back of my head, or at least has been for several years, to do a game on it. And uh, the opportunity presented itself. Uh, White Dog Games seemed, in th- seemed thrilled with the idea, so I went and designed the mission. So before we dive into the mission, I would like to mm-hmm. ask you, and, and, and later, of course, I would like to ask you more about um, your own personal faith journey. Sure. Um, but just for the sake of anyone who's listening who maybe wants to get to know you better, um, if you could pick a highlight reel of your top three games that you designed, what would be the best games, the, the games that would be most indicative of your overall personal canon? What would you recommend to newcomers uh, to Ben Madison? Well, <laughs> it's funny because I'll start with one that a newcomer is probably unlikely to play, but that is Absolute <laughs> Victory. Uh, Absolute Victory, which was published a few years ago by Compass Game, which is my my one and only entry in the monster game category. It, it okay. is an enormous game. It took 20 years to design. Uh, Wes Ernie, my, my game design partner, and I worked on that uh, really starting in the late 1980s, and then it wasn't published until three or four years ago. Um, and that is a gigantic global-scale game on the Second World War. And what makes that game sort of uniquely Ben is that it has a random event system that has over 2,500 random events in it that govern all sorts of things that in, in other war games players are responsible for, especially a lot of political uh, and economic things that are really beyond a country's control, but uh, which is why I wanted to make them random. So sort of to justify having a complete world map, there are a number of events, for example, of possible pro-Axis or pro-Allied coups in Latin American countries. Mm-hmm. So you you draw the chip and it says, well, on a you know roll two dice, on a roll of two sixes, there's a pro-axis coup in Argentina. And it's it you know, I, I didn't like the idea of players having, you know, the, the players with the eye of Sauron being able to point their finger at Argentina and say, I'm going to try a coup here. Mm-hmm. My assumption when making the game was every government is trying to maximize its chances with every other government on the earth. I just wanted the random events to show when you actually get inside the, you know, inside the presidential palace and have an opportunity to really make a difference. Right. And that's an interesting approach in part. So one of the first games I played was uh, Axis and Allies. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. Brazil as this big, you know, Latin America occupies a big portion of the map for some reason. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, it is totally uh, an, an appendix to the rest of the game. And Brazil sure. is this big pro-ally uh, country that seemingly just, you know, that entire theater just doesn't matter. Right. Yeah, one of the, one of the great powers. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, Absolute Victory is kind of like that because it is a, it is a global map. But the way I designed the map is... The scale of the map is different depending on what part of the world you're in. So mm-hmm. 
it can includes, for example, all of Africa, but if it were drawn on the same scale as the rest of Europe, it would be about twice as big. So I have a, a map that has, you know, from the top of, of the map is Scandinavia and the bottom of the map is South Africa. But you draw a line, you know, sort of halfway up the map and it goes through the Mediterranean. So, you know, in real life, it would go through the equator. So Africa is done on a much smaller scale than Europe, but it's still a single map using hexes. So you can march your armies, you know, down through Turkey and the Middle East into Africa. Interesting. Okay. But it's it's a huge game. It's got, you know, 1,100 counters or something like that. So that would be the, that would be the, that's the game I'm most proud of because I'm actually amazed that it got published because it got turned down by uh, decision games. But mm-hmm. uh, it sold a lot and it has a devoted fan base. So I'm, I'm quite proud of that game. Um, other games that are, you know, distinctively mine, I would have to say the White Tribe just because it's a unique game system that I tend to be kind of um, derivative when I design games. I don't mind borrowing systems from other people's games. I always ask their permission before I do it. But I've, I've published a lot of games that uh, that copy other people's game systems. I just put them in different settings. But the White Tribe is is a very unique game system, so I'm I'm quite proud of that. That's a game on the the Rhodesian Civil War of the 60s and early and uh, to the late 70s. And then really the mission, because the, the mission is just such a cool concept, you know, to do a game on religion and not about war per se, and yet have it within the general boundaries of, of war gaming as a hobby. You know, I think it appeals to the same people, but it, it also apparently has a broader appeal. It's selling really well. So I'm, I'm very proud of that. And it has a lot of my own little personality quirks and historical interests in it. So I, I enjoy that. That's great. Well, I'm glad we're here to talk about one of the games you'd recommend, and you didn't mm-hmm. say Nubia, and it turns out we're we're going to talk about something <laughs> I don't care at all about. <laughs> so what I wanted to talk about today, Ben, is the mission, of course, but I wanted to talk about it in um, a, as a study of three artifacts in one, mm-hmm. so to speak. So I wanted to talk to you about the mission as a plaything, as a religious artifact, and then as a personal artifact. Um, so why don't we start with, and and I feel like this peels back the layers a little bit where we're going to start with it. Here's the game on your table that you'll play with. Here's the game maybe you'll think about. And then here's the game that exists, uh, to you as the author of the game that maybe is a little harder for people to, uh, learn about because they don't necessarily get to ring you up and have a conversation with you. Sure. So why don't you give us the elevator pitch? But this is a very slow elevator, like in a mine shaft, and maybe it's a little <laughs> broken and rattling. What is the mission for someone who's listening and has no idea? What, how how do you how would you distill this into a few paragraphs? Um, the mission is a solitaire game where you play the early Christian church. You start off in Jerusalem with a handful of apostles, and you send them out into the Mediterranean world, the Middle East, uh, North Africa, East Africa, um, Persia, Central Asia, Eastern Europe, and and Western Europe, and you are trying to convert the world to Christianity. So you explore, you discover, 
territories to see who the people are there. Are they receptive to the message or not? Are they easy to convert or hard to convert? Do you then spend time converting them or do you move on to the next territory beyond and discover them? Maybe they're a more fertile ground. And eventually you build up this church that uh, occupies the same territorial space as uh, Christianity originally did. Then you have the fall of the Roman Empire. You have a number of other uh, historical events that come in at more or less the same time, or more or less the time that they should historically, including the rise of Islam, which then attacks you from behind. You know, your base used to be in the Middle East. Well, now their base is in the Middle East, and they're attacking right. you. And then eventually um, you come to the Crusades, which is the grand end of the game. You total up your victory points. You see how many people you've converted, how uh, how widespread the church is. Were you able to hold it together ideologically, or did it splinter into different factions? Have you been successful at uh, suppressing heresy? Things like that. And uh, you total up your victory points and see how you did. Now, so it's my understanding this is somewhat based on the mound builders that you co-designed with Wes Ernie. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. Yeah, the, just the general concept that you start in a central position and you, you build your community and then your community is threatened from outside. So that's the same concept. The states of siege system, which I, I don't know if you want to explain that uh, if your listeners are familiar with that, but the states of siege system usually involves you control a territory and then enemies come at you on these different lanes and you try to hold them back. What made Mound Builders different was that you start off in the center and then you have to expand along those lanes. You have to build your empire. And then the enemies come after you. So your success in the game doesn't just depend on how well you resist enemy attack. It depends on how well you were able to build up your empire in the first place before the enemies even show up. So you have used States of Siege in a, a few of your games. Was, was Mound Builders the first one that saw players expanding outward? before uh, being compressed by threats externally? Yeah, in fact, I think, yeah, in, in the whole States of Siege line, I think we were the first ones to do that. Wes and I did Mound Builders, and that was a, that really flipped the, the game system on its head and um, made it a unique game. And then you do the same thing in the mission. And one of the things I like about the mission, so am I correct in saying that? So I've never played the Mound Builders. I remember when it came mm-hmm. out, I was interested in it. I've always had an interest in uh, Native American history. I actually mm-hmm. lived on the Crow Reservation for a time. Oh, um, wow. So I've always been fascinated by that, and I have actually been to the Mound Builder sites, mm-hmm. um, which are are surprising. <laughs> you don't expect much from mounds until you get there. Right. Um, <laughs> So am I correct, though, that the mission takes it even a step further in that – so in the Mound Builders, you weren't attacked from within the way Islam attacks you from within. Correct. Correct. Okay. Because that's one of my favorite things about the mission is that you're attacked from without and then from within, mm-hmm. which tends to fragment and make little subcultures of your Christianity. Right. Yeah, that was um... – the idea of doing an, an inside-out States of Siege game, we had done that with the first Jihad, which is a game on the rise of Islam, where right. you start the game controlling the entire map, and then the Muslims boil out from Mecca and try to sort of push you off the map. And what we did with, or what I did with the mission, is both systems. First, you build your empire, then you're attacked from, from outside, 
then you're attacked from behind. So you have these right. sort of three three layers of uh, of conflict or, or of, of challenges. So to somebody who's coming at this, uh, maybe hearing about it for the first time, or even somebody who's experienced with states of siege, it might sound complex uh, that mm-hmm. you're being attacked from all these directions and you're expanding and you're contracting. And so, but one of the things I love about the mission is the way it trickles out its complexity over multiple eras. Mm-hmm. Um, so early on, for instance, as you mentioned, you just have the apostles and it's, it's to me, um, my understanding is it's pretty much a press your luck game, <laughs> um, right. because you have a little bit of money and you are sending them out, but you kind of want to save your money. So you, you send them out without any preparation and they might be martyred. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and that's all the game is until you end the apostolic age and, and enter into a, a different age, which is more about the state of the Roman Empire in relationship to the early Christian movement. Um, and it just keeps trickling out those rules. So it adds uh, the barbarians, for instance, and then it eventually adds Islam. Um, how did you choose? So, so this system, I would describe it as telescoping. Um, mm-hmm. How did you choose what to include, um, how to do that? Were there any challenges in compressing a thousand years of history into, you know, six uh, discrete eras? What was mm-hmm. the thought process behind that? Well, I knew from the outset that there was a lot of stuff I would have to leave on the table that I just couldn't include because of the complexity of it. And a number of people on board Game Geek have suggested, you know, put this in, put this in, put this in. And my my reaction is, yes, go ahead, please do that as a house rule. You know, publish it. I don't mind. <laughs> Tell people how to have more fun with the game. But I just can't fit it in a 16-page rulebook, and the game is already quite long. It's uh, 27 turns, representing over a 1,000 years of history. So the way the game was designed was a deliberate simplification of things for play purposes. That mm-hmm. I, I hope I've balanced it well. And judging by reaction, I think I have. Was there anything that was particularly... Uh, difficult for you to cut out? Uh, let's see. Um, there were a number of things about ecumenical councils that uh, that I wanted to make more complex, and eventually I just left them out. The combat system I made as simple as I could, um, just you know, sort of die rolling. You got to roll higher than a number. Uh, yeah, that was another thing that could have been more complicated. And the, the whole system of the Arabs coming out. Originally, that was more complicated, and then I just decided to make it completely random to sort of give the player the sense that the the world he knew is falling apart. You don't know which way they're going to come. Well, you know which way they're going to come from, but you don't know which avenue they're going to, to go and with how much strength. Because there are a number of states of siege games where you can outthink the mechanics of the game. Uh, that This is a... a a problem I have with states of siege games, there's a lot of card counting going on where if you if you know, oh, well, there's that one card where my enemy gets six advances, but I've already played that card. So I know my enemy will never get six advances against me for the rest of the game. Right. There's a lot of that in states of siege games. And that's a mechanic that I really don't like, especially because I'm hopeless when it comes to math. And so I always lose games like that. So I just decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to punish the card counters by making this one element of the game completely beyond the player's 
ability to prejudge. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I like that is it removes to some degree the element of historical foresight that I think is actually a, a big problem in a lot of war games. Mm-hmm. Um, that it gives you too much hindsight um, and it can't put you into the decision space of the people who are actually making those decisions the first time through. Right. Um, so, for example, I was yeah. recently playing the mission with my friend John. And mm-hmm. I was going, yeah, you know, the places you have to worry are, you know, Syria is likely to fall, and, you know, you need to worry about North Africa. And then what did he do? He rolled a one and a two on his jihads with six. <laughs> um, and so Western Europe, the, the, you know, Islam penetrated to Ireland, and Islam uh-huh. penetrated, <laughs> you know, all the way to Constantinople all at once, no matter how right. well he was had defended it. And uh-huh. um, And so Christianity became this very... You know, it became for um, far mm-hmm. flung, very different brands of Christianity without a central okay. ruler. Right. Um, and I loved that 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 was that was the expectation of mm-hmm. no expectation. So, what were you going right. to add something about that? I, I I was, and in fact, you you brought it up before I could. The 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 business about the central ruler that is an aspect of the game which I didn't start out having, but I simplified for for game's sake. And I kind of wish I had drawn one of my counters differently so that players could play around with this. But the game starts out with the assumption, the sort of very Western, you know, Eurocentric assumption. If you're in communion with Rome, you're part of the church. And if you're not, you're not part of the church. Mm-hmm. I just did that for simplicity's sake. Originally, oh, okay. there was the possibility that the yeah, the successor of Peter or whoever you want as the, the head of the overall church could wind up on any of the six paths. So you might be in this position where you're fanatically trying to defend the Nile Valley because that's the heart and soul of 20, you know, of, of, of modern Christianity. But I just decided that would be way too complicated. So I'm just going to say Rome. If you're, if you're with Rome, you're good. If you're not with Rome, you're good. That's interesting. I was actually going to ask you why you had picked uh, Catholicism and orthodoxy as mm-hmm. orthodox. So that was, right. so that yeah. was pure gameplay. Well, it was, but it was also the historical fact that the Catholics and the Orthodox won those battles at the ecumenical councils and the other mm-hmm. groups didn't. So I sort of had to decide, you know, am I going to, how, how loosely am I going to mirror history in and I just decided to say that, you know, the the church councils get to decide who, who the winners and losers are, so I'm just going to stick with their decision for the purposes okay. of the game. Now, I, I exchanged emails with you um, a few months ago, and at that time, I don't remember when exactly it was. I think it was around the time that I was looking at the first jihad. Um, mm-hmm. And at that time, the, the mission had actually stalled. Um, yeah, yeah, it had. So what what happened there? It seems like very quickly you went from saying it had stalled to saying, oh, we're, no, we're finished and we're going to print. We had a number of playtesters, and, and including myself, and we all sort of had this feeling that the game bogged down towards the end, and you were just sort of after the rise of Islam, you were sort of just repeating yourself turn after turn. And then there was this very gamey mechanic that I had at the end of the game on how to manage the crusade. 
that would lead into the final uh, phase of the game where you count up your victory points. And I had a guy who started out as a play tester and turned into a full-blown developer, a fellow named Charles Dudgeon, who lives in Scotland. And the first thing he said was, just lop off most of those late turns, which is why if you look at the acts track on the on the um, sheet of paper that comes with the game, you have the last four turns of the game are these huge boxes, and all the turns above them are small boxes. It's because originally where I, I had uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Originally I had eight turns after the the rise of Islam. Now there are just three, and a, and a final sort of end turn where you total up your victory points. And I played it out that way with no other rules changes, and I found it made an enormous change in how fun I found the game. And mm-hmm. so he and I and a number of other playtesters, we adopted that system. We played it out. It was just the, the simplest thing in the world. And yet it it changed the game from being a, a game that turned out boring to a game that turned out exciting. So what was the original uh, mission? Did you so what did the crusades look like that was so boring? it was extremely abstract you had a crusade marker on the track that goes on the bottom of the map and the muslims would randomly attack you and you would try to spend action points to build up your armies and fight them and it was but it was just going back and forth on a line between 10 or between 0 and 10 and you would do that right. for a couple of turns and it it was even more abstract than the rest of the game. I think I felt it had crossed the line into being too abstract, and I was just unsatisfied with it. And then finally, when when we made all the changes at the end, I call the end of the game the Crusades because I didn't want to change the title of the game. Mm-hmm. But what you're really doing in the last phase of the game is you're totaling up your victory points, and that determines sort of if you have made a big, successful Christian church, you're going to win the crusade. If your Christian church is small and divided, you're not going to win the crusade. And that determines your victory point outcome at the end of the game. So there really is, you don't fight the crusade. The crusade is just a result of your cumulative play from the beginning up to the end of the game. And for game purposes, I think it works great. So now that it's out and it seems like it's doing doing well for a, a mm-hmm. niche, you know, hobbyist war game, right. mm-hmm. um, you know, which I have no idea what that means. I know what it means when uh, a new dominion uh, you know, expansion comes out. I know what that means when it does well. Right. But in the world of war games, doing well sometimes means it sells 200 copies. Right. Um, um, so congratulations that it's doing so well. Um, but now that you're getting some responses to it, is there anything that you would have changed with the uh, benefit of hindsight? So far, no. Um, so far, I'm happy with, with the way it is. And again, I'm willing to entertain people's ideas of house rules. And I, I hope people make suggestions along those lines. But uh, the game turned out sort of the way I had envisioned from the beginning, just with a different ending that makes it more satisfying to play. Have you have you considered uh, continuing to push this system? It seems like you've been one of the big innovators in taking the states of siege system, which is I, I like the states of siege system uh, mm-hmm. as an abstraction. I don't like it as a game system that is. I feel like too often it's trying to express a little beyond itself. 
okay. um, that its reach exceeds its grasp. So I appreciate what you've done. Um, your states of siege games do tend to push push the system to levels that I didn't expect uh, mm-hmm. that they could actually function, which I like. Um, are you are you thinking of moving? again with the system? Are you going to take what you've done with the mission and apply it to another theater? What What are your plans there? I really I really don't. Um, I don't know what I would do with that system in another conflict. I know that Wes and I have talked about certain conflicts that would be cool to do as States of Siege games, the, um, uh, the, the Wars of Frederick the Great and the Seven Years' War. Uh, Wes came up with an idea for how to run that as a State of Seed game that I thought was brilliant, but we just haven't gotten around to doing it. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think. You know, my next the next game I have on my plate, which won't be for a while, but uh, it's a game on the Korean War, but that's not a State of Seed game. That's actually more like the White Tribe, although it's it's different it's different uh, in terms of military system. But mm-hmm. it's, it's a very political. It's a very political game. You play Harry Truman, and you're not just trying to manage the war in Korea. You're trying to manage MacArthur. You're trying to manage Congress. Okay. You're trying to manage the press, <laughs> and so uh, you're trying to fight an election in the middle of the war, which did not work out well for for Truman. And so yeah. that's 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 the next thing on my plate. So. Uh, I'll share an anecdote that I think will pivot us to the next way of thinking about the mission, which is as a religious statement. And it, and it has okay. to do with a question that I, I have seen people ask you, and I've heard your answer mm-hmm. um, on Board Game Geek, but Board Game Geek is, is, is gross. It's paratext. It's not interesting. Um, <laughs> so I want to ask you, so here's what happened. So we had some bishops, you know, our apostles had been martyred. Uh, this was still very early on. And mm-hmm. uh, I was playing with a friend, John. Um, and he moved the bishop forward. And of course, what, what happened? I think you already know the answer. Right. Um, <laughs> we put out a tile that represents the people that, you know, the small communities in the cities and, and provinces that we're going to to try to convert to Christianity. And who did we put down, Ben? <laughs> you probably found some women. <laughs> we found some women. And of course, uh, this isn't a problem for the apostles, but we put down the woman tile, and what does the bishop do? He flees in holy terror, uh, <laughs> turns rock and runs. He retreats, and retreats to the which, land he came from. Right. Yeah, he retreats. He he beats a trail, and, and 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 of course we burst out laughing because in terms of gameplay, this is actually a pretty big event because it's expensive to move these bishops. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, so, so what's going on? But once they're what discovered, he, 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 he's, he's okay. He can go back into where the women live and not be freaked out by them. But That's it does true. cost an extra that. solidus to be able to, to move him back into that area. Correct. That's true. He can, he can eventually come to terms with their icky women. <laughs> yes. So, so but, but what caused his, his flight of terror in the first place, Ben? Are you, is this projection or is this based on history? <laughs> this was a game mechanic that was in search of a theme. Um, I wanted some something to be where you discovered an area, but you had to retreat from it to make it more expensive to eventually convert that area. And I didn't know what would cause that. And I went through a whole bunch of ideas of what could possibly cause that. Would it be would it be heresies? Well no, it couldn't because I already had a heresy system in the game. 
so, you know, what would it be? I didn't want terrain or anything like that. That would be silly. So I just sort of said, oh, you know, he's he's flustered by women. I'm just going to have him retreat because there was women there. And maybe the women are being too assertive. Maybe they're saying, you know, hey, you know, uh, we can prophesy too, can't we? No! So he retreats. And <laughs> that's how it ended up in the game. That's interesting. I suppose um, I should have just said in the game, if, if you don't like this idea, if you think this is a historical, treat this as an optional rule. But so one of the reasons I was so fascinated with that, and I, and I gather that some other people have wondered about it as well, um, <laughs> right. is just because, so my background is in religious history. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I have my degree in uh, late antiquity with a focus on early Christianity. And oh, cool. for my thesis, I actually wrote about early Christian attitudes toward women. Oh, okay. And how it shifts. And so to me... Okay. The fact that apostles were not afraid of women. Um, oh, right. Yeah. I, I, I was going, well, that's Paul and Priscilla. <laughs> right. They, they didn't seem to have a beef with women, but it was very mm-hmm. rapid um, that some of the successors to the apostles right. did start to have uh, some tension with women. I mean, even Paul potentially had. Right. You know, sure. Oh, yeah. Despite yeah. really relying on Priscilla. Um and for those who don't know, Priscilla is an early uh, Jewish missionary who works with Paul. There is a there's an outside chance she may have been one of, an author of Hebrews. Um, so so looking at that and seeing Paul be comfortable with Priscilla, but still kind of you know potentially write into some of his letters. Yeah, but women, you know, uh, yeah, don't, they shouldn't they shouldn't be but, teaching. They shouldn't be teaching. They shouldn't, right. they shouldn't teach unless it's Priscilla. But right. You know, so so I was wondering if it was that. But so it sounds like that was me reading in um, my own theme into the game. Well, you know, that that was one of the most wonderful things of your review of this game is you provided insights into my game that I wish I had had. That there were a number <laughs> of things where you pointed out how this, you know, this works historically or it works doctrinally. And I, you know, I sort of vaguely... I was along those lines, but I would never have thought to put it as crystal clear as you did. So um, that, that's why I recommend that everybody read your review of, of this game. So, okay. So, well, well, thank you. That's kind of you to say. And I'm also glad that I rethemed the women part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I, you, talking about that, I, I just read a biography of um, Mary Magdalene. And it was talking about how there are these early texts, I mean, not super early, but early Christian texts that talk about all these things that Mary Magdalene went out and did. And then in the later editions of them, it's Peter who's doing the exact same thing. It's like she's just taken out of the story and replaced with a different character, a male character. And But the stories are the same. Yeah. (laughs) So there was definitely a, a change of attitude towards women as the church developed. But, that, but I, I did not consciously I did not consciously design it so that the apostles would be immune to their feminine wiles while the bishops would be terrified <laughs> of them. That that wasn't really in my head, but uh, you know, if, if that's the way somebody wants to read the game, more power to them. I think right. it's a great story. Well, to me, I see. I I could have sworn that's what you were trying to do because one of the things uh-huh. that's so impressive <laughs> with that period is just. That the, the, the early Christian views on women, um, obviously we wouldn't think of it as liberal, liberal or mm-hmm. conservative 
Um, right. You know, those are those are much later terms. But if you want to use exactly. those terms, that Jesus was so progressive in terms of mm-hmm. identifying the marginalized right. and elevating right. them. And then, and so were the apostles, sort of. Mm-hmm. And then their successors were, sort of. And that right. sort of just ke- keeps modifying it back toward kind of the Roman mm-hmm. ideal. Exactly. Um, yeah, to, to make, make Christianity safe for a Roman audience. Right. Or for a Jewish audience, for, for that matter. True, yes. Everyone had a beef with women. Right. So one yeah. of the things that I really appreciate with the mission um, is that it, it's other than other than the Catholic Orthodox thing is that it really mm-hmm. avoids the Eurocentrism that usually appears in narratives about the expansion of Christianity, mm-hmm. um, arguably even including the New Testament. Right. Um, so so what was the thought process there um, that you allowed? Christianity to move in all four compass directions instead of just west. Well, I understand it, you have some associates helping you. Right. Yeah, I I come from a background where my academic background involved a lot of contact with people from Eastern religious traditions. I had a Coptic Christian roommate in college uh, representing the Christianity of Egypt, which at the time I had never heard of, but I remember. When he introduced himself, he said, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I'm not an Arab. I am an Egyptian. And I said, okay, <laughs> I thought Arabs were Egyptian. And he explained to me, no, Arabs colonized Egypt, and the original Egyptians were Christian, and there's still 10 million of them, and they're still there. Uh, and yeah. I have a, a friend who's an Armenian Orthodox deacon. He's actually a convert from Lutheranism, but uh, he's Armenian Orthodox. And so that was my window into the half C, if you look at the map, and how Christianity developed in the Caucasus and uh, Armenia and Syria. And then uh, when I was in college in 1986, I went on a trip to the Soviet Union and we went to Soviet Georgia, which is also, it's, it's Orthodox, not uh, it's not in schism with, with the, the great church. But that was another experience that I had where I discovered this Christianity of the East that nobody in the West knows about. And I was just fascinated by it. And so uh, since then, I've been to all sorts of religious services and cultural events and everything for, for all these separated churches of the East. Unfortunately, we don't, have a, we don't have an Ethiopian congregation in Milwaukee for me to attend. But uh, I would have loved to do that in the age before COVID. So someday I hope to go down to Chicago and go to an Ethiopian service. Sure. But that was, and you know, just for, from a game perspective, I wanted to do that thematically, but also because it's a state to siege style game, you have to have a certain number of paths. And so having everything running into Europe and possibly North Africa would have wasted so much opportunity. So I mm-hmm. was able to create my map with six paths, and, you know, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, the Caucasus. Central Asia and Persia, the Nile Valley, and North Africa. And North Africa is also, you know, that's that's the only one of these six paths where Christianity has completely disappeared. It survived on all the other paths. And I have a, mm-hmm. a particular interest in the Donatist movement, which flourished in North Africa from the 300s till about the 500s. And it was in opposition to the Catholic Church, although theologically it was very similar. But they had very different 
different ideas of religious purity and the relationship between church and state. And so that, that was a, an outpost of Christianity that always fascinated me. So I wanted to make sure that they had their role in Christianity. You also do something similar where um, early Christianity is very plainly Jewish. Uh, yeah. Do you want mm-hmm. to comment on that? Um, I, I guess I've, I've read so much about it, it's sort of second nature to me, but I don't think it's widely understood in the West just how yeah. Jewish Christianity is, and I sort of wanted to underline that in the game. I, don't, I didn't want to beat people over the head with it, but I thought you know, this is a, a, an easy way to show how the first converts to Christianity were Jewish. There was a book that influenced me a great deal, um, <laughs> which I'm blocking on, uh, but it's in the um, bibliography of the game. Uh, it's written by a sociologist, and it talks about how the way he runs the numbers to try to figure out how this religious movement could grow so quickly from a, a base that's so small. And he concludes that the mission to the Jews was probably more successful than most people believe. That it was a, Christianity was a form of Judaism that would have been familiar to the Jewish population of the Mediterranean, which as time went on, Becoming Christian, you could retain a sense of your history and your heritage, but you could also be okay with the government. And so, uh, you know, as Rome became Christian, this was a way that uh, the church could grow using a base of converts who theologically were not that different from what the church was already teaching. So those are things that I, I, I look at the mission and um, as I wrote in my review, one of the things when examining the mission as as an argument or as a statement, I think it's I think it I think it behooves us. And first, I'll say the reason I bring this up is when I first saw the mission, um, which was actually before I had played any of your games, yeah. um, mm-hmm. I saw it listed on Board Game Geek, and I shared it on Twitter and said, "Wow, this is a game I really want to play uh, because it intersects with my my background in education." Mm-hmm. And um, and one person, um, he said, I would never play a game like that. That looks, you know, that looks awful. That looks like it's right. minimizing non-Christians. Um, and to me, my my view is always, well, if if it were that, I would still love to play it, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because I love engaging with arguments. But mm-hmm. I think it's necessary. I think it behooves us to look at the mission and see all the ways it could have gone wrong. Um, so that's why I'm yeah, I, I, I like that. I like that uh, comment in your review. Right. I, I, I can easily imagine um, the mission as designed by someone um, from my own faith tradition, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, as as just being very dismissive of uh, of everyone, really. Um, so I appreciate that it's not very Eurocentric. I appreciate that it incorporates the Jewish tradition. Um, mm-hmm. So I had some questions about some of the other decisions you made, and, and maybe some of them were game design decisions. Um, okay. So as I raised in my review, you know, sometimes we see, uh, you know, which church fathers were included or theologians were right. included versus not, um, which sects are considered kind of fun schismatic traditions that are still allowed in the game versus which ones are uh, villains, as you list them in the in the notes to the game. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> So, so what do you have any broad thoughts on that, or or do I need to? Well, the the ones that were included, um, I I had to make a distinction between schism 
and heresy, just for game purposes. A schism is something that can take over an entire path. It's big. A heresy is something small and localized that affects one particular area. It's much smaller. Okay. Although there are big, there are big heresies. There, there are the Gnostics and the Manichees who each get three counters each. So they can geographically, they can show up uh, over a wide area, but they're not going to, uh, to break the entire path away from communion with, with Rome, which is what you're trying to maintain in the game. Plus, each one of them has an identity, and I, I, that's why I wanted to make sure I included that page that shows the, the different factions and, and, and villains, <laughs> which I, I know was a little over the top, but uh, I don't think any of those are still around. No, I don't think they are, unless you include the New Age movement as Gnostics. But there's no, there's no historical continuity between them, so. Although some restorationists would say that's a good thing. The reason I'm asking this is, for instance, one of the uh, church fathers you include, and I would I would agree with his inclusion, um, mm-hmm. is uh, John uh, Chrysostom. Oh, Chrysostom, yep. And you know, in your notes, you you mentioned that he's a bishop of Constant, Constantinople. He's a humble reformer and an honest, loving orator. Right. Um, so, how directly should a game model um, the bad stuff? Um, so your game doesn't well, include like atrocity, for instance. Right. Yes. You can suppress. Yeah, you can in the game. In, yeah, in the game. You right. You can persecute rival Christians, or you can persecute heresy, because it does help you, at least in the short run, uh, to do yeah. that in the game. But then you and have there are long-term consequences. Yeah, you, you do include some pretty pointed downsides uh, to behaving that way. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so, you know, many people, um, I don't, I don't, I shouldn't say that, but many of the people that I've read, um, argue, for instance, uh, that Chrysostom was kind of the originator of the way that we think about anti-Semitism. You know, he wrote, uh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Judaic yeah. tracts, um, even as recently as World War II. Now, mm-hmm. now I wouldn't say that they were following exactly his line of thought. They were abusing his line of thought. Um, right. however, you know, he, in many ways, he's considered to be the originator of modern anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. So, so how how should that be modeled in the game or not modeled? Uh, what's your responsibility as an author, um, as somebody who's using this at least in part as a as a teaching tool? Well, the way I handled the theologians was extremely abstract. That for game purposes, every theologian is exactly the same as every other theologian except yeah. that they have different geographical areas where they can function. Right. And that largely drove the choice of which ones I picked because I wanted to have it geographically balanced. Um, that's like, for example, on um, on turn six, I have Tertullian and I have Clement of Alexandria. Well, they're both deserving of a place in the game, but I didn't want to have two theologians on one turn. So I had to pick one, and I... Tertullian because I really enjoy reading Tertullian. So that um, that's how that turned out. And then at the end of the game on turns 23 and 24, you have Isaac of Nineveh and John of Damascus, who nobody outside of maybe Eastern Orthodoxy has ever heard of. But mm-hmm. at you know they were big names in their day. So I, I included them because they fulfilled my requirements for geographical balance. And uh, also I wanted some people late in the game and by that time, you know, a lot of the great names had disappeared. 
you know, we hadn't gotten into um, Thomas Aquinas or, you know, people like that. That came later. So right. it was sort of a sort of a dark age of Christian thinking. But I managed to pick out a couple of names that I thought stood out above the fray. Yeah. So I put them in for geographical and, and historical timeline balance. And obviously, if people want to know more about these characters, they can look them up. But I, I didn't want to give each theologian, like, special powers. I, yeah. I wanted a simple rule where you have a theologian this turn, you go to that part of the rule book and see what he can do. So you didn't want to, for example, um, just to add complexity to it, you didn't want Tertullian, mm-hmm. uh, whichever theater he acts upon, to, to add monotism. <laughs> right, yes. Or, or a yeah, yeah. Roll, roll a die to see. Roll a die to see if he goes montanus too early in his career and has no impact at all on Christianity. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, 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 how do you make the decision of of what atrocities or 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 what representation gets included or not? So, in this case, it seems like the decision was fairly easy. That you wanted theologians and church fathers to be. Uh, Occasional power-ups that would, that would right. help you in case you didn't have much money. You had a lot right. of bad wafers. Um, so apart from that, did you was there a thought process behind what gets included? Um, like anti-Semitism, for instance, gets rounded out entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, with the with the theologians, the other thing that I wanted to do is that that they can backfire on you. Because mm-hmm. if you, if oh, you yeah. use them, if you use them too much, they, they raise your dark ages level. So that's, right. that's a way that, uh, you know, you can, you can always do things with theologians that will help you. But if you're greedy or desperate, um, or you want to push your luck, you can try making them even greater figures than, uh, than they are if you just do the minimum. And then there's that possibility that they can blow up in your face. Which theologians yeah. often did. <laughs> sure. So, do you do you regard the mission as a as a teaching opportunity? I think so. I, I absolutely do hope that it gets used in Sunday schools and uh, you know other such uh, venues because I, I think there is a lot to learn about it, especially for American Christians who, especially American Protestants, whose you know idea of Christianity sort of fades after the crucifixion and picks up again and you know on the door of, of the church in Wittenberg. That this is something that I, I wanted a game that ended before the rise of Protestantism to show just how much stuff was going on, what kind of diversity there was, what kind of what kind of adventure this church was on for a thousand years and then um, you know before the, the modern period, before the Ren Raff period showed up and changed everything fundamentally. One of the things that I do appreciate quite a bit, so my own tradition is also Mormon. Um, mm-hmm. And in Mormonism, there's a basically doctrine. It's sort of a, a wiggle room doctrine about the great mm-hmm. apostasy. Right, and, yeah. Uh, uh, so there is a book written um, by Talmadge, is the author, mm-hmm. uh, called The Great Apostasy, which very famously argues that Christianity was entered into apostasy pretty much by the, let me look at your uh, <clears throat> act sheet. By what turn Oh, yeah. entered the great apostasy? Uh, probably by the third turn. Okay, yeah. Yep. Um, so a- everything between 
Karen three and 27 um, within within my faith tradition would be considered to be evidence. Um, and of course, this is working. This is not a good argument. This is working backward right. from the conclusion um, right. that anything, any any innovation, anything that any of these theologians would have argued or introduced um, would therefore be in wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, that these would be the heresy. So I do right. appreciate that quite a bit. Um, well, and, and from 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 where I'm coming from, I'm coming from the RLDS tradition. That was my my world, my Mormon world was the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, based in Independence, and the offshoots that came off from it, including one that I was the church historian for for over ten years, and in that tradition. Um, the, the counting, the, the, the point from which you draw your conclusion and count back from is the year 570. Because in five, the, the idea was that the year 570 marked the apostasy of the church because in the book of Revelation, the woman who represents the church is supposed to go off into the wilderness where she remains for 1,260 years and then she returns and brings all the great blessings with her. Well, Let's start in 1830 when the church was born. Let's count back 1,260 years, and what do we get? Oh, 570. So something must have happened in 570 that marks the apostasy of the early church. So people in that faith tradition are committed to an idea that the church survived somehow for 570 years. And I don't think they've done a good job explaining how that could be, because the RLDS tradition, at least the, the traditional conservative RLDS tradition is very religiously conservative. Uh, There was an RLDS historian who referred to conservative RLDS people as Southern Baptists with two extra books of scripture to interpret strictly. And so the the RLDS tradition has come out with a number of books over the years. Uh, The best known one is probably Daniel McGregor, uh, Marvelous Work in a Wonder. And I just lapped that stuff up when I was in in the uh, RLDS tradition. I loved that stuff. And so that's what drove me to my voracious reading about early Christianity. In fact, I wrote a book for them called 570. And mm-hmm. I made a case. I made my case for this is how long the church survived. And it fell apart around 570. And the prophecy came true. And we're right. So the so is the RLDS tradition um, non-Nicene, non-Trinitarian? Well, it uh, it depends on which faction you talk to. Uh, in 1984, the prophet of the RLDS Church, Wallace B. Smith, the great grandson of Joseph Smith Jr., had a revelation which allowed the ordination of women, and that was the last straw for a number of people in the church that had seen the church sort of drifting to the left theologically, and that that prompted an enormous fracas where probably over half the active membership left and reorganized itself into these independent congregations that don't have anything to do with the mainstream of the RLDS church. And the RLDS church eventually, they've sort of given up their Latter-day Saint identity. They don't call themselves Latter-day Saints anymore. They changed the name of the church to the Community of Christ, which is like the most generic 
religious yeah, name imaginable. I actually have a community of Christ uh, church and school on my blog. Oh, okay. Um, so oh, I, wow. I have a number of community of Christ. Um, I, I know I know a few members there. Okay. Um, yeah, and so I, um, I I I ended up when the, when the schism happened, I ended up going with one of the conservative movements. But uh, I was always on the liberal end of the conservative movement. <laughs> I was too liberal to be in them, and I was too conservative to be with the mainstream RLDS, now the Community of Christ. So I the, the um, moderate I just, the moderate's plight. Yeah, yeah. So I sat in my cubicle and wrote my articles for the church magazine, and I wrote my book. But eventually, uh, it all fell apart. We had a we had a prophet who was stealing money from the church and. <laughs> He eventually okay. left the church that he had founded, and uh, he actually became Mormon. And so he uh, he died in, in full fellowship with um, Brigham Young. So, <laughs> which is like the ultimate apostasy <laughs> if you're an RLDS yeah. member. Right. So, <laughs> oh boy, he went west. Yes, he went west. <laughs> he went with the uh, the Hiram Smith family rather than the Joseph Smith family. So I I want to return to this in a moment. Um, okay. For now, After this I, I wanted digression to... about Mormonism, <laughs> and I do want to return to it because I, I, Mormonism fascinates me in terms of its obsession mm-hmm. with ancient Christianity, but um, but also its its dismissal of ancient Christianity. But I want to yeah. return to that yeah. in a moment. Um, for now, I, I wanted to ask you a, a sort of metatextual question. Mm-hmm. Um, so at least, so I've played um, three of your games um, that engage with religion. Okay. Uh, as I said earlier, and one of the things that people always ask me, uh, so I am active on social media, and I, you know, every week I tweet a list of everything I played. Okay. Uh, and I do like a little picture of the game, and I just write, you know, whatever Twitter lets me write, which is mm-hmm. 280 words, uh, characters right. or something like that. I don't actually know how much. I just type until it tells me to stop. And sure. um, and I and I say anyone who wants to ask questions about these games can. Okay. The number one question I get about games like Nubia, um, mm-hmm. the White Tribe, even um, the First Jihad, and now the Mission mm-hmm. is right. is it Islamophobic? Okay, and I get that question pretty much every time uh, I I tweet about your games, uh, right. at least these games. <clears throat> so, and I've mentioned in some of my reviews that I don't think that I see evidence of Islamophobia, but perhaps. Uh, some Islamo anxiety. And the reason oh, yes. that I ha- have written that, and this, you'll get your chance to refute me. Um, the reason I've written that is if we look at kind of your body of work, um, mm-hmm. Islam has a tendency when it's included to be an antagonist, um, right. including in the first jihad, the game about the rise of Islam, where, so you have a game about the rise of Islam and you play as everybody. Uh, you even play as Basically, the Chinese. You you know you play right. as you play as Christians. You play as pagans. You play as everyone mm-hmm. who is around Islam. And then you have a game about the rise of Christianity, and you play as the Christians. Right. Um, so, looking at this metatextually, what are what are your own perspectives? How would you answer uh, the people who write to me to ask if the games are Islamophobic? Um, what what is your actual stance? Uh, on this, well, I, I'm I'll, not asking because I want you to say no. I, I just want to know because right. um, you could make the historical argument that Islam has been antagonistic. Right. 
Well, I'll, I'll give you a game designer's answer, and then I'll give you a personal answer. Um, the, the game Perfect. designer's answer is someone suggested very early in the production of the first Jihad, why don't you do it from the Muslim point of view? And I sat back and I thought, okay, how would that work? And I concluded that would be a really boring game to play because you would just spend two hours in front of your table beating up on people, you know, beating up on helpless opponents as you're expanding. And it would feel more like one of the the, the politically incorrect colonialism games that, you know, have sort of fallen out of favor, where you're going and beating up on Indians or beating up on the Africans because you have more power than they do. And I just, that's not the kind of game I wanted to design. So I, I wanted so a game for, where you're up against so the wall. Portray, and, for instance, a, a fragmented Christianity into a number of small polities and kind of some atrophied mm-hmm. pagan groups and some far off, you know, already declined Persian and, you know. Yeah, all these, these opportunities that presented themselves to early Islam, to the, the Umayyad Caliphate, that, uh, that they were able to take phenomenal advantage of. And I just didn't think it would be that fun of a game. Yeah. It wasn't much of a, it wouldn't be much of a challenge to the player. I could have made it a game where it was a challenge to the player. But, um, yeah. I guess that's not the game I wanted to design. Which then gets into my personal answer. <laughs> which is that, um, I don't like the term Islamophobia because mm-hmm. it implies an irrational fear. And looking back on history, I guess I have to decide, was the rise of Islam a good thing or a bad thing? And other than creating a community where ideas from East and West could accumulate together and mix and lead to a number of early scientific uh, innovations and the, the preservation of a lot of Greek philosophy and stuff like that, I don't really think it was a good thing. I mean, if, if Rome had somehow conquered Persia and half of India, you would have had the same situation. You would have had a community stretching from Europe to Asia in which those ideas could have collected and those, those innovations could have been made. And it would have had nothing to do with religion. It would have just been a historical accident that you've got an empire whose boundaries extend from X to Y. And so you've got a, a great opportunity for people of different uh, scientific and historical and philosophical traditions to get together and talk to one another without a, a hard border between them, you know, which was a great thing. That was one of the great achievements of the Islamic world was the, the fact that, that all these non-Islamic cultures could talk to each other. And it, it led to the sort of the, the, the rise of the Islamic world as a, center of thought and philosophy and science. But, uh, you know, Islam is not my favorite religion. I have a lot of theological problems with it, and I have historical problems with it. And so, um, you know, it's if I design a game about the, the German invasion of Belgium in 1914, am I Germanophobic? You know, is, is that I'm looking at a war of aggression, a needless war of aggression. And am I prejudiced because I'm taking the side of the victim? And I, I, I would dispute that. 
do you feel uh, the expansion of Christianity, for example, is uh, non-aggressive? Depends on the, the period of history. The expansion mm-hmm. of Christianity into Africa or into Central and South America was certainly aggressive. Mm-hmm. You know, it followed on the heels of of wars of of conquest, and which in some places became wars of genocide. Although, yeah. you know, there's there's certain you can make a case that the missionaries weren't always hand in glove with the administrators of these empires, but in some places that case is a bit stretched. You know, there's yeah. the, speaking of speaking of the mission, <laughs> there's that famous movie with um oh gosh, Jeremy Irons and who else is in it? Um is it Robert De Niro? But it's about the uh, it's about the Jesuits in Paraguay in the eighteenth century and how right. the Jesuits were actually siding with the Indians against the Spanish government, and that's what led to the Spanish government ordering the Pope to dissolve the Jesuit order which actually did take place because the the Christians were taking their Christianity too seriously and obstructing the um, the work of the empire. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that was a typical story, but um, right. but it but it happened. Land that's beyond the scope of your game. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> Although it would make a cool game to you know the Jesuits and the Indians versus the Spanish. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to design it, <laughs> and I couldn't call it the mission because I've already designed a game. The last thing I wanted to ask you, in your notes, uh, right at the beginning of your notes, actually, you quote uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, mm-hmm. verse 8, mm-hmm. um, which, which says, "When the Son of Man returns, will he find anyone on the earth who has faith?" Mm-hmm. Um, is this the thesis statement of the mission? Kind of, kind of. I think the, it's in the player's hands how successful the church is, whether it succeeds or fails. And I think that it's one of those exceptionally challenging scriptures because there are so many people who would read that scripture with puzzlement that, you know, well, Christ established the church, and so of course it's going to go on and it's prophesied that it will go to the ends of the earth, and it's prophesied that every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow. So why is Jesus asking this stupid question? And I, I think those are those are the best scriptures, is the ones that challenge you, that, that make you think that uh, sure. you know it's not as it's not as cut and dried as you or your pastor says they are. And uh, that's why I, that's why I picked that up. So what is the uh, perhaps more uh, sticky or tricky meaning that, that you're applying it? In what way is the mission approaching or answering that question? It's your, the game is your opportunity to answer the question. It's to, if you believe in the cause, which can either be you believe in Christianity or you believe in winning this game, you try to do as well as possible and that'll answer the question for you. And sometimes if you don't play well, the answer is no. Or no one. <laughs> is there any commentary on not only the survival of Christianity as a noun or as an institution, mm-hmm. but Christianity as an original doctrine? Um, so, for instance, one commentator on my review asked the question, um, is Christianity, is its ethic 
Is it deontological or is it consequentialist? Um, do the do the means are they justified by the ends or is there a central uh, moral code that should not be broken in the spread of Christianity? Um, you have any thoughts at all? On that, in reference well, I would to certainly the, say I would certainly say yes, although it raises the specter of the um, the no true Christian argument that mm-hmm. you know if, well Christians don't kill other people in the name of religion. Well, what about Constantine? Well, yeah. Constantine wasn't a true Christian, and yeah. I I'm not sure that argument can be made. I think. Um, there are limits to what you can do and still be considered a Christian, but it's not my role in the universe to decide where those limits lie. Pivoting mm-hmm. into the, the mission as a personal artist. So you've mentioned your background um, growing up as an atheist and converting into the Mormon tradition. And in the notes, you mention uh, a, a religious experience you had, I believe, at the Hagia Sophia. Correct. Um, could you give us some sense of your own religious journey um, since you've you've moved between multiple faith traditions? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I again, I was born and raised atheist, and then when I had my conversion experience, it was in within the context of Mormonism, and one of the key elements of Mormonism is the idea that Jesus established one true church and that anyone outside that church is, if not damned, at least not uh, not in, in true fellowship with Jesus. And um, now, just, that... Just quick sidebar. Sure, yeah. go ahead. Um, does, so does the RLDS church practice baptism for the dead? It does not. Okay. Which I, I actually had a problem with for a long time, because I always thought that made sense to me intellectually that, you know, baptism for the dead. And then as I got older, it started making less sense to me intellectually. You know, mm-hmm. you know, all the people who died, you know, in the 19th century, okay, we can baptize them, but what about when you get back to the period where there's no genealogical records? Are those people mm-hmm. just stuck for waiting for centuries until the, you know, until Jesus comes back and reveals all the microfilm that allows us to baptize for them, I, I don't know. And I, yeah, I don't he, know how the... When, when scriptures talk about his great host, that's actually, the, that's microfiche. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, sorry, go go ahead. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I found myself in a tradition that believes that there's there's one true church and that you have to be a part of that church or, uh, or face uh, damnation. And as I got older and more well-read, um, I started to have problems with that. And then it, it really started to worry me that Christianity had, and again, this is an interesting way to think about it. One of the biggest struggles that Christianity faced was the war with Islam. It, you know, it's gone on for 1,400 years. And it wasn't the restoration movement that faced that struggle. It was the Christians that we all considered apostate. And it 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 distressed me that people in my own faith tradition lived a safe and secure life in America 
where we don't face persecution, you know, no matter what people on the right say, <laughs> Christians are not persecuted in this country. I don't, yeah. <clears throat> I don't believe. And so visiting the Middle East, I visited the Middle East several times and, and come into contact with Christian churches and, and Christian communities over there. Um, visiting churches in Israel and Jordan and Egypt and other places like that. But it was when we went to Hagia Sophia that it, it really sort of hit me that it was, it was unfair for me to consider these people apostates. That I, I had to take their Christianity seriously and I had to look at what they believed, not just from the faith position, you know, the faith tradition that I was a part of, but to try to look at it more objectively. And I had done all the reading. I just hadn't come to the conclusion. And I, mm-hmm. I finally decided this is the last straw for me, and I'm going to try to find a place for myself in the, the wider Christian tradition. And the irony of all that is, for me, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I was extremely prejudiced against the Bible. I had all these books from American atheists, you know, how the Bible makes no sense, it's full of contradictions, uh, it's got, you know, the, what were the what were the words that Pilate actually wrote on the cross? Well, they, each of the four gospels says something different. And yeah. as I became a, as I went to college and became a historian, I realized, you know, that's how history works. You have a bunch of sources that contradict each other, and you have to try to figure out which is the most accurate, if any. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that we have four different gospels that tell slightly different stories didn't bother. Me. And so. I was able, I think, I hope I'm approaching it from a more mature standpoint. Uh, in sure. And then I just decided that I, I wanted to find my relationship to Christ in the church that he had founded, not a church that had been founded in 1830. And so I looked at the world. I said, okay, what churches go all the way back to the beginning? And, you know, I, I found a place that I'm comfortable with. And... Um, so, you know, again, but like I like I started to say, it was that conflict with with Islam that went on for so long that, you know, there were all these brave people who tried to defend what they believed to be the gospel. And their sacrifices their sacrifices made a an impression on me. So you wound up uh as an Episcopalian? Correct. Yep. Okay. And I, I happened I happened to go to one of the most high church parishes in the entire American Episcopal Church. Uh, it's, uh, it's very Catholic in terms of its style of worship, and I I, I fell in love with that. I uh, I mean, this this is going to sound really silly, but when I was when I came back from Hagia Sophia and I was doing all my research to try to figure out what step I was going to take next, I did the very modern 21st century step of going online. And literally typing into Google, what church is right for me? <laughs> and there was a website that came up where you actually you were given positions on different issues. And you clicked the position that you felt most comfortable with. And then it would use its algorithms to calculate which church you should be a part of. And it actually, the, number two was Lutheran, which I thought, that's weird. I don't really like Lutheran. But number one was Episcopalian, <laughs> which is a church I had never, ever considered because I knew yeah. nothing about it. And so I started reading their literature, and I started talking to some of their people, and I just I felt comfortable and uh, felt comfortable right away. And I spent a couple of years 
investigating, and then uh, I was finally received into the church in uh, 2010, I believe. I have a I have a friend who's a Catholic priest mm-hmm. um, who has written a little bit informally. I don't think he's published anything outside of newsletters and so forth, where he's okay. made the argument that you know he's very uh, critical of Protestantism in all of its forms. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, which is hard to blame him for at times. Um, sure. <laughs> and, and he argues that that he feels that truth, uh, if you want to belong to to a church, that mm-hmm. it should be found in Catholicism, Islam, or a restorationist millenarial movement like Mormonism. Okay. Uh, have you? So when you look back, do you feel Episcopalianism? Uh, provide, it sounds like it would provide what you were looking for in a church that stretches back and links to that high tradition, um, that goes back all those thousands of years. It does to me. Um, I think one of the things that made a difference was the idea of apostolic succession. That, mm-hmm. uh, even though the Episcopal tradition is out of communion with Rome at the present time, um, it, it does come from the Roman tradition. And mm-hmm. which is an absolutely legitimate tradition. I, I like to say that if you believe in Protestantism, you have 40,000 churches to choose from. If you don't, you have five to choose from. You have the Catholics, the Orthodox, the Nestorians, the Monophysites, and the Anglicans. And I think those mm-hmm. are those, so those are kind of my five options. And I yeah. seriously looked at all of them. And uh, I settled on the Anglican tradition. Are there any ways in which the mission is reflective of your personal faith journey? Other than uh, a collection of the things that I have found interesting over the years, um, I'm not sure it does. Um, you know, again, I settled on the player is in communion with Rome, but that was more of a, uh, a historical postulate that I sort of had to put in for the church, for the game to be playable. Uh, there had to be a center that, you know, because I had, there's, there's orthodoxy and heresy. Yeah. And it had to be on one side of that divide or the other. And so I figured, well, how do you define orthodoxy? Well, you're in communion with Rome. And, and it's funny how it showed up in the game, because if you, if you look at the counter mix, on the back side of every Pope counter, there's the schism where the, the, he goes into schism and is no longer in communion with Rome. On the back of the Roman Pope counter, there's nothing, because he cannot go into schism. He, he is permanently true from the game's point of view. And yeah. um, I wish I had not done that, because then I could have written an, an optional rule later on to uh, what, you know, what happens if Rome goes, goes nuts and, and you know, um, the Armenians are the true church. But, yeah. That was beyond the scope of the game that I designed, and so unfortunately, it's it's too late to change that one counter, unless the player wants yeah. to go in and draw the little chalice on the back of the Pope <laughs> himself. Right. <laughs> so, my, I suppose my last question for you, um, as someone who considers himself Christian, um, as someone who's designed a game about Christianity. What do you hope this game will function as to somebody approaching it who's maybe principally a war gamer? Or there may be they may be critical of Christianity. They may not know much about it. Um, in 
is this game, in addition to being education, uh, is it in any way evangelism? Well, I guess I would say no, but only because I've approached it as a historical subject and not as a, a, a theological, you know, not not as an evangelistic tool. I think people who are already Christians will enjoy this for its theme, and people who aren't Christians may enjoy it just for the gameplay, um, although they may be so turned off by the theme that, that they don't play it. Um, I'm reminded of this fellow that I saw online. Uh, there's a game called Cruel Necessity, which is a game about Oliver Cromwell. And mm-hmm. um, there was a fellow commenting on the game who lives in Ireland. And he wrote, I have no problem playing a game as the Nazis in World War II, but I will never play a game as Oliver Cromwell because I might. Mm. Yeah. And so I, I can see there would be a lot of people who would be so turned off by the, the Christian theme of this game that uh, they, they won't play it, which I think is unfortunate because I think it's a fun game to play. But uh, mm-hmm. the, the market is the market. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, is there anything else you would like to uh, add or correct or disclaim before we finish? I can't really think of anything other than to make sure that everybody who listens to this podcast reads your review of the game online because I thought it was a brilliant, beautiful review. And um, Thank you. So I'll do that. Thank you and for then... such a great game. I think this is easily one of the best games of the year. Thanks. I, I try to do – I try to put things in games that are a little bit controversial, a little bit unexpected. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I did a game on the Civil War that – take slavery seriously as an issue. And um, I've been very surprised at the reaction to that, but no one has really, well, no, there was one person who really complained about it, but uh, they complained about it so vociferously that Board Game Geek deleted their post. Uh, But other than that, um, that went over very well. And uh, certainly, uh, I I, I couldn't, Jeff Davis, yeah, I could not in good conscience do a game on the Civil War and overlook slavery. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, people have to remember exactly who these people were, what they were fighting for, and not just say, oh, I love those gray uniforms. And they were so great. Cool. Right. Well, thank you again, Ben. Uh, this has been a, a wonderful conversation, very illuminating in many ways. Um, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed this a lot, and uh, I hope it uh, gives people some insight into uh, what kind of a designer I am. I my games are idiosyncratic and I forget who it was but there was a famous author who said I write the books I would like to read and yeah. I design the games that I would like to play so sure. they're they're full of they're full of personal quirks and uh, you know, little things that that I find interesting that maybe no one else does but you know I hope somewhere buried in there there's a nugget that someone's never thought of and maybe in this case, uh, with the mission, maybe you look at that list of, of heresies and schisms and say, I'd like to learn more about that. 